And you be seated. I'm glad you're here this morning. We are in our study of Luke, and we're really just getting our feet wet. We're really just kind of wading into this to this longest of all the four gospels. There is uh, Luke wrote this gospel his his record of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection as a result of years and years of study. We don't know exactly how long. We don't know exactly where his origins are from. Uh, we don't know when he became a believer. We don't know. Uh, when he began to do this study. The reality is he may have been studying this for 30 or 40 years. What we know is, based on the introduction that we studied last week, is that he spent years pursuing this and studying it. And he, he went to eyewitnesses and he heard their account. He read the written records that had gone before him and, and he studied them and he affirmed them and he did research and, and he put it all together and he saw that it was good to write it all down. And then he did something... That, that, that I would encourage each of us to consider doing. He gave it to somebody that needed to be made certain. In fact, that was the, the goal of, of this gospel uh, account was that Theophilus, the man who is named at the beginning of the book, that Theophilus would be made certain. That he would be made confident, not just in what he had been taught, but in what he was believing. He needed confidence in what he had been taught so that he could be confident in what he was believing. And that was Luke's desire for him. And so he wrote this systematic and, and orderly and mostly chronological account so that Theophilus, and now us, and, and any, anyone else that reads it, would have a trustworthy account of our trustworthy Savior. And the truth is, is that's kind of where we landed, was this idea of confidence, this idea of being certain in what we believe. We, we landed there last week, and I asked you a question. I presented to you a question that I've heard before from I believe it's Tim Keller about doubting your doubt. Why don't we ever doubt our own doubts? Why is it that we're so certain of our own views? Whenever, whenever we doubt something, it's not like we ever question whether or not we should be doubting it. We just, we just doubt it because we've got experience or we've got perspective or we've got something that tells us that we should not be uh, certain and confident in whatever it is that we're doubting. Well, I asked you that question ultimately because I wanted you to be faced with that reality. But I thought about it this week, and I, I think that it's not true that we don't really doubt our own doubts. I think we do. I just don't think that we admit to it. I have a theory. I could be wrong about this. And I told the first service that I probably wouldn't say it this way, but it's too late. I've said it. I might be wrong. I don't like to admit I'm wrong. So this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for you. I've done it all on my own. I might be wrong, but probably not. Um, I have a theory. <laughs> I have a theory, I can't prove it, but as I've thought about it, I think we do doubt our doubts. We just don't call it that. Instead, we call it worry. I mean, think about this. If we were supremely self-confident, would we ever worry? Would we have a reason to worry? If we knew all the answers that are, uh, that, that are out there, if we could control all of the circumstances that were ahead of us, that we had supreme self-confidence that our ability would carry us, would we have a reason to worry? Or would that worry ever be able to grow to anxiety? And, and, and would the numbers of people that live in the world today paralyzed oftentimes by anxiety disorders, would that be growing? Would it be more and more all the time? I mean, would there be people who are immobilized by their worry if we were really truly self-confident? Even in nervousness. 
I mean, have you ever been faced with this a circumstance that you feel pressure for? Maybe even the, the thought of getting up and speaking in front of people makes you nervous. Maybe performing some task in front of people, people watching, makes you nervous. Taking tests, maybe it makes you nervous. If we're supremely self-confident, if we're not ever doubting ourselves or even doubting our own abilities or doubting our own doubts, would we ever even feel nervous? Would we ever feel afraid? We were, what are we afraid of? We're, we're, we're afraid of pain. We're afraid of loss. We're afraid, afraid of, of making a fool out of ourselves. We're afraid of um, all kinds of things. But if we were supremely self-confident, would we be afraid? Would there be reason to fear? Would there be any reason for us to, to, to doubt that? See, the truth is, I don't think that we simply doubt God. I, I, I believe we doubt God. I believe we doubt His existence. I believe we doubt His power. I believe we doubt His intentions for us at times. But I believe we doubt ourselves. I believe that we, we doubt ourselves as much as we doubt Him. We just don't call it that. I think they're at the heart of each of these is an inherent reality that, that, that we understand that we were never meant to be completely self-sufficient. That we were never to be completely sufficient in our own ability and our own thoughts and our own perspectives that we needed someone else. In our fallen nature, we're, 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 we're fighting with all of our might, with all of our fleshly might to live this self-sufficient, independent life in our, our nature. Our, our, our hearts are crying out, no, this is not what it's meant to be. You can't do it on your own. And so you worry, you can't do it on your own. And for, for some of us, that worry grows to anxiety and it, and, and it builds upon us and immobilizes us. For some of us, it's just this nervousness that's in our heart, never feeling settled or, or sufficient in anything, and just butterflies always eating away at us. And for others, it's fear. Because we know. We know. And here's the beauty of, of, of this whole thing. Here's the beauty of this whole thing that, that God and he, he leads Luke to write this gospel account that Theophilus. And you and I can be certain that you and I can be confident in what we've been taught and and what we believe so that you and I can know. And the the truth is, as he as he steps into the teaching, as he steps beyond the introduction, Luke shows us a trustworthy God. A God that we no longer need to doubt. A, a God that we can be confident in. A God that remains trustworthy. So we're going to be working our way through Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. If you've got a Bible, you're welcome to go ahead and turn there. And we'll work through the passage, and then after we get to the end of it, I've got five, just five quick points of application I think will prove helpful. And, and we'll do, I believe, what Luke intended to do. To show us a God who we can trust. To show us a God who can be counted on. Who we can be certain in. Well, let's read. Beginning in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. 
Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. And we'll stop right there. I just want to build out the setting. I want you to, I want you to see what's happening. I want you to get some of the finer points that, that aren't just readily apparent. Luke starts us off with this, this setting the time for us, setting the timeline in the days of Herod. He's pointing to Herod the Great, who ruled from like 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. And this is probably landing somewhere in 4 B.C., the, these series of events. Herod was... a. a Terrible, horrific, cruel man. He's remembered in history as a master builder. He was, he was Rome's ruler for Judea. He was, he was Rome's way of controlling and, and calling into submission Jerusalem and Judea. But, but he was a cruel man. But history remembers some of the good things he did. Some of the good things he did. He, he wasn't only cruel. He was, he was remembered. In fact, he won Jerusalem over by building out their temple, by expanding it and, and making it better than it had ever been before. It was bigger and more luxurious and more space. It was, it was this beautiful, this beautiful temple. And he won them over. He, he won them over to, to his affection. But, but, but that would be, that wouldn't always be the way it was. He was, he was horrific. He had 10 wives and 15 children. And he was such a cruel man that his favorite of the wives, at least the, according to my study, his favorite of his wives, Miriam I, began to nag him and he had her killed. But she was nagging him because he killed her parents. If you're going to nag somebody about something, I think killing your parents is a, is a suitable reason for constantly, hey, I can't believe you did that. What were you thinking? You hurt me. I, what is this about? But it's not just his wife, not just his favorite wife that he was cruel before. It was He had 15 kids and two of them he killed because he thought that they were trying to take over his throne. He was so selfish and so self-centered that, that, that he had his sons killed. If this is the way he treats the people that are near him, imagine what he does for those that are distant from him. He was known for this. This is, this, this is who he was. And he would only be nice. He would only do things for you so long as it accorded him some privilege or it, it worked out in his favor. But Herod, he, we move past that really quick, don't we? Now Herod's not the point of the story. But Luke immediately moves past him and, and introduces us to Zechariah and, and Elizabeth. Zachariah and Elizabeth, they were, they were, they were going to be the ones that this, that this story, this narrative would focus around. And they were both children in, in the priestly line. Aaron, I'm sorry, Zechariah was of the division of priests. There was 24 divisions of priests, and he was in the division called, of Abijah. And, and the way things worked is that these 24 priests would share the responsibilities in the temple in Jerusalem, and they would go for their time, and they would serve for a couple of weeks, and then they'd go home, and then they would serve as priests in the synagogues, the local synagogues that were around the area. But, but they had two weeks on, and they would serve and rotate through like that. His wife was a, 
was the daughter of a priest. She was the, she was a daughter of Aaron. Essentially, she was she was in the priestly line herself, and so they were they were together. They they were a, a, a special people of God's special people. He says to us that they were righteous. He points out, in fact, that they were righteous before God. They, they oh, lived in obedience to Him. They, they lived in service to Him. They, they didn't just follow His commands. It says also His statutes. And, and in the commentaries that I've studied from, it, it points out, it emphasizes that the way that language is used, that they weren't just following the letter of the law. They weren't just following it in ceremonial ways, but they were following it in moral ways. That they were following the letter and the spirit of the law. That they were striving to live in obedience to all that God had commanded the Jews. There's so much that that tells us about them. But even in their righteousness, even in their righteousness, they had no children. And he sets that out as a contrast. And just imagine, just imagine what they thought, how they perceived themselves, how they, how they endured things like ridicule from those around them. In their culture, the world, the, in, in their culture, in their context, the, the people would have looked at them as if they had done something wrong and that they were under God's divine punishment because they didn't have children. And not only would that have been the case, but imagine the doubts and the questions that they would be asking of themselves. What did we do to deserve this? Aren't we living faithfully? Hasn't our God heard us? See, here's the reality. As you look at Herod, you, you, you can see and you can begin to learn that the times were uncertain. It was no longer Babylon. It wasn't Persia. And it wasn't Syria that was causing Jerusalem or Judea trouble. It was Rome. And they had established a ruler over them that would oppress them and would use them for their purposes, for their own purposes. It was Rome. Times were uncertain. They were governed by people who didn't care about their covenant with God, who didn't care about their best interests, who didn't care for them. They didn't, they didn't have a concern for what was going on in Jerusalem so long as it wasn't troubling them in Rome, so long as it wasn't taking away land and rule and authority from them. Times were uncertain. Circumstances were uncertain. And here is this family living faithfully, striving for obedience. But, but they hadn't heard from God for 400 years. See, we're getting a glimpse of the very first moment that God begins to speak after being silent for 400 years. Has He forgotten us? Is He hearing us? What have we done that He has looked away from us? And I don't want to press ourselves into the text too far. I don't want to impose too much on the text, but I think it's important that we gain a foothold here and recognize that this is a story that's told time and time again. I know that in our church that there are that there are women who long to bear a child. And they can't. As much as they try, they can't. 
And so they face the feelings of being a failure, the feelings of not being certain of what's going on, of, of wondering what has happened. And not just their own their own personal stigma, but the social stigma that, that in church circles comes with that. Why haven't you had children yet? I heard someone ask a good friend of mine just recently. As if something was wrong, as if he was choosing to just not have kids. I, I know, I know the pressure that puts on people and the doubts and the questions that can't, we, we, we just can't help but ask. I want you to know if, if you're struggling with that, and I am praying for you. I'm praying for the women of our church that you, that God would open your womb, that you would bear children, that you would be protected from words, words uttered in ignorance not understanding the struggle you face, that the Spirit would protect you from stupid questions of ignorant people who aren't thinking that you might want children. I'm, I'm praying. I am praying for you. And I am not the only one. I am praying for you. That if He doesn't grant you a child, that a spirit of comfort would come. And show you that children may be a blessing, but they are not the only way He blesses us. That you would sense His presence and His comfort and know that His plan for you is right and good. I'm praying for you. And this principle, I think it goes even further than families who are struggling with bearing children, with having children. Who is in the place they thought they'd be all their lives? I mean, whose life has worked out exactly like you intended it? Who is not facing trials and struggles in this world? Women who are single. Men who are single who thought, well, I'd be married by now. Oh, it's wrong that I'm not married by now. Married. But you found out your spouse is much harder to be married to than you ever thought possible. What did I do? To deserve a spouse who's so selfish, so self-centered. You had other goals in life. And due to unforeseen circumstances, circumstances beyond your control, circumstances that you could never have planned for, you are now in this place that you are, you are, you are just like, well, you're, you're like everyone else. You're just an average Joe. Work a day, paycheck to paycheck, wondering I thought I, I thought I was going to be a superstar by now. I thought I, was, I had it all planned out. I'm striving to follow the Lord, to live faithfully and obediently, to, to follow His commands, to, to trust in Him completely. Where is He at? Why is it so difficult? Why am I facing these struggles? How long has it been since we heard from Him? 2,000 years. Is all of this really worth it? Does it really matter anymore? Is He really coming again? I mean, there's better things to do, isn't there? Does it really matter? Is it really worth it? 
I think this is exactly where Zechariah and Elizabeth were. See, I think their circumstance, I think their, their situation is not much different than ours. Serving, living in obedience, expecting God to come and show up. But for 400 years, I've been waiting. Is he really coming? And now we're left with this, with this struggle. We've got no old age. There's really not, not even any reason to continue to ask or expect. Because by our perspective, there is no more chance. You see, they were too old, Luke tells us, that they were too old even to consider. They, they weren't going to get pregnant. And so this thing that brought so much trouble seemed to be permanent. Zechariah was just about to have the best day at work ever. He didn't know it. He had no idea. It was, his, it was his division's turn to go to the temple. They didn't live in Jerusalem. They lived a ways away. They, it's their turn to go to Jerusalem. It's their, their opportunity to, to serve in the temple and do God's work there and offer sacrifice and, 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 and do the work of, of mediating between God and man. And they were... That, that, this is what they trained for. You know, this is what they looked forward to. And he shows up. And he's there and, and they draw lots. It's, it's kind of like drawing straws. And he got the straw. He got the call. It's like, it's like the pitcher being called out of the bullpen. It's like he got the call to come to the pitcher's mound and do what he'd been expecting and longing to do. It was such a special event that you could only ever do it once. This truly was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. He's going to get to go into the holy place. It's the place that's just outside the Holy of Holies. There's this... This, this curtain, this thick woven curtain that separates the Holy of Holies where God resides in the holy place and He's going to get to walk in there and He's going to get to light the incense that, that, that brings offering and, and worship to God. He's going to get to do that work. This once in a lifetime opportunity. And He walks in and He does His thing and while He's there, the, the people, He leaves them outside. He goes inside and it says that the people were outside. The, the assembly was outside gathered, worshiping. They were praying and worshiping and, and expectantly looking for Him to come back. He goes in. He does His thing and before He leaves out, boom! The day just gets better. Someone who wasn't there when He walks in is there before Him, appears before Him. It scares him. In, in the Greek, I think what it literally means in the Greek is that he nearly wet himself. You can laugh at that. That's not really what it says. That's me trying to be sorry. I should have shouldn't have done that. He was scared though. He was an old man and he is freaked out. It's lucky that he came out. It's lucky that that, that didn't that, that didn't just shock him to, to the point of no return. It's, 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 it's amazing. And he's afraid. And things are about to change. Something big is about to happen. God is on the move. In fact, it reminds me, I don't know if you guys have read the, the Chronicles of Narnia, but this reminds me of the moment where, where the, the Pivensey children, I don't know how you say that exactly, but the four kids come into Narnia for the, for the first time, I think they're all together and they meet uh, a beaver and the beaver says to them, Aslan is on the move. God is on the move. 
He doesn't even know how yet, but he sees this angel before him. It's been 400 years. It freaks him out. Well, let's keep going. Pick it up in verse 13. But Zechariah, but the angel said to him, I'm sorry, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Fear is the normal, that's the normal, the, the normal reaction. Like everybody gets afraid when they see the angel. I don't know if he's dressed in some warrior's garb and just like freaks you out. I don't know if he's glowing, if he's got big wings that hang off him like we kind of we paint pictures of. It. I don't know exactly what he looks like, how he appears to Zechariah, but it is normal for people to be afraid when they see angels. So don't puff up and think, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm tough, man. I believe God enough. I, I'm not going to be afraid. This is normal. It's, it's the, normal, the normal reaction. And so it's normal then for them to say, do not be afraid. I'm not here to hurt you. I'm not here to harm you. I'm not, not here to, to, to bring harm to you. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. You shall call his name John. What do you think that news does in Zechariah? I mean, it's... Just, um, what? I have a son. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. I mean, God is acting, he is electing, he is, he is making certain that John is going to, 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 to be his. Before he's even born, he says, John will be filled with the Spirit. He says in verse 16, and he will turn many of their children of, children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. God speaks through this angel, God begins to speak. And so this man who has waited for all his life, all his life to, to, to witness God's work, all his life he has served and expected God to show up. And in this moment, he does and God speaks. And this is power, it's important, it's, it's, it's special. Because where God finished speaking in the Old Testament, he picks up speaking in the New. It may have felt like 400 years to everybody else, but for God, it was just a moment. In Malachi 4, verses 5, or, yeah, Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, he is, it is the last two verses of the Old Testament. It's the last two verses, and it's the prophecy of the forerunner of the Savior coming. It's the prophecy that one is coming, that Elijah is coming, and he's going to turn his people back to God, and that he is going to prepare God's people for him. God didn't miss a beat. God is about doing his work. He is about seeing that the history of redemption doesn't stagnate or stop, but that it continues. God is about His mission. And while we may be waiting and while we may be wondering what's going on, God is at work waiting for the right time to speak. It's not going to happen as fast as we'd like. It didn't happen as fast as they wanted it to. But God had not forgotten them. He, had, he hadn't quit on them. He hadn't walked away from them or turned his back on them. 
But now the time had come for the next steps to take place. For, for the history of redemption to move forward. In fact, it was going to take a big leap forward. But what's going on in Zechariah? I mean, what is he thinking? We pick it up in verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I, am old, for I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. What kind of sign are you going to give me that this is going to take place? Like how, how are you going to make me certain that this is going to take place? And Gabriel, the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I think there's force with this. I think there's a very direct uh, uh, tone in his voice. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you to bring this good news. You know how you know, you know what sign you're going to get? There's an angel standing before you. Remember when you just about wet your clothes? Remember the, the fear that you felt just a minute ago? Right now, there's an angel before you. This is how you know. Why are you asking? I, I stand before God. I was sent with this word. It is enough. And behold, verse 20, and behold, you will be silent, unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Who do you think sets that time? Who do you think's determined the time that those words will take place? God does. It's God who chose to speak in the time that he chose to speak. It's God who's going to determine the time in which uh, the, the son will be born. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. Remember, we've left these people outside the temple. They're out there praising and worshiping God in the hour of incense. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. And they were wondering at his delay in the temple. It had taken too long. It's like when you go into a worship service and the guy plays the chorus way too many times. And you're like, when are you going to move on? I don't know if you've ever been to one of those churches that likes repeats the same chorus over and over and over and over and over and over. You know what I'm talking about. They're like, what's happened in there? What's going on? Where did he go? What, what is he doing? And they're waiting for him. And says, and when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. In his doubt, it didn't just affect him, but it affected everyone else. They missed out on hearing the message. They missed out on the opportunity to know that God was on the move. He kept making signs to them, it says, and, and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And they never figured it out. They never understood. They, they never completely got it. Oh, I, we, you saw something. You, you saw a sign of some sort. But, but they never knew. I mean, just imagine how difficult it was for him. It's not like he knew sign language. He was, he's working this out as he, he goes along. He, he's in this place. I can't speak. I've got to communicate somehow. And he tries, but he can't communicate the message. It makes me think of a story. I probably shouldn't tell this on myself, but I, but I will just because I think it helps illustrate it. I was in Korea. It was the first year I was in the Army. I had just finished basic training AIT. My first place of duty was in Korea. And I was out on the village, and I was looking for eggs. And I walked into this market, and it dawns on me as I walk in that I don't know where the eggs are. I, I mean, it didn't dawn. I couldn't find the eggs. It dawns on me, though, that I can't speak to the guy to ask him about where the eggs are at. And I'm like, well, we'll work it out. So I said, egg. He didn't get it. 
Like, well, this is going to be good. So I put my arms up, my fingers up in my armpits. And I started to flap my arms and bob my head and make chicken noises. Cluck, 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 cluck. Yeah, I don't know what Koreans think that chicken sound like, but I was working off an American chicken. Right? He's not getting the point. He thinks I want chicken. I, so he got that, but he, I don't, no, I want eggs, you know. So I think I have to bring this a step further. So, flapping my arms. And I, you know, like, you know, that. I want that. I don't know what he was thinking. But he didn't get egg. Not for about 15 minutes. I did that over and over again. He never got it. Well, he finally got it. I don't know. I don't know if I, I don't know if he got it early on and just thought it was funny to watch me do that. But he didn't seem to get it. And then he showed me. He finally understood and he shows me after all of this work, all this effort. How do you tell somebody in sign that you don't sign and they don't sign? And how do you tell them you just saw an angel and he just told you that your wife who has been barren all her life is about to have a miracle baby? You might be able to figure out how to get some eggs, but I think it'd be really difficult to, to convey the joy of that message. See, they missed out. They weren't the only ones that missed out. I mean, he goes home. He goes home and what's he tell his wife? I mean, why does he, how's he help her know what's about to happen? How does he even introduce that in sign? Hey, we're going to have a son. I can't imagine that, how difficult that was. And Zachariah doubts even when God speaks, but God still accomplishes what he intended to accomplish. In spite of Zachariah, Despite Zechariah. See, it goes on. It says in verse 20, 24, And after these days his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. He took away my shame, she says. He, he's made me whole, she says. That's what she thinks. See, I, I don't want to be rude or crude in this, but, but you need to get this. This was, not, this was not a surprise to God that she was barren. She had not, she had, had not been able to have a, a baby. Having not been able to do that was not a surprise to God. He, he likely was involved in the fact that she hadn't conceived so that the moment could come that his angel could show up and say, Zechariah, you are going to have a son. I'm old. My wife is old. Our bodies don't work the way they used to. This was going to be a miracle baby. In the days before pills could help us do this, in the days before fertility treatments could make it possible, God had to work in the midst of every circumstance that was about to take place. Even in the night. Imagine. How does he let her know? Certainly there's ways. But she still doesn't fully know. She's not going to get to hear it from Zachariah's mouth until the baby is born. 
And yet, she got pregnant as an elderly woman. I don't know how old she was, but she was beyond years, beyond the years of, of, of giving birth. And, and I don't get it. I don't, I don't know if you get it or not. I mean, I want you to see it. This is, this, God's not just at work in the conception and making sure that she gets pregnant. He's making sure that John makes it to birth. I don't, I don't know if you know this or not, but, but elderly women getting pregnant is not a good thing. It's not healthy. I mean, doctors don't say, hey, make sure you have children all the way up to the, to the day you die. They say there's a point, and you know physically there's a point that it typically stops. But if it happens, it's not something that is it's like, oh, we've got to watch out. God is at work. He is accomplishing His purposes. He is accomplishing His will. He will always bring to fruition what He has spoken. You can believe Him. You can trust Him. You can be certain in Him when we have so much to doubt in ourselves. You can be certain and trust this trustworthy God. He will always accomplish all that He says He will do. Let me just give you five quick thoughts that I think will help bring this to, to, to application in your life. God's plan. God's plan is not to accomplish your life goals. Unless your goals are to live in accordance with His plan. We all got plans, right? We all set goals in some way, some fashion. Even I'm not even a planner and I make plans. I've got ideas of things I want to happen. God is not bound to my plan. But I am bound to God's. We are all bound to God's. And we can throw His name around all we want. God told me to do this. God said I should do this. Here's what we know for certain. The promises He's made in His Word are the promises we can count on, the, the checks that we can take to the bank. Everything else should be tested in light of His Word. Nothing else can we, can we stand before Him and say, I was promised this. This, in His Word, we know we have a promise. You can make your bucket list without considering God's plan for you. And you'll likely find that there's a lot of things you don't get done. You can make your bucket list considering God's plan. And you might get a few things wrong here or there, but you will not be disappointed when it's all said and done. When He is finished, you will find yourself satisfied. Doubt and fear will not remove us from God's grace. Second, doubt and fear will not remove us from God's grace but will keep us from enjoying it most fully. Thank God His grace is big enough to cover our doubts and our fears, our unbelief, our lack of trust in Him. Thank God that He is more gracious than that and that He is not counting you worthy based on how good or how strong you believe. Brothers and sisters, learn to believe. Learn to be certain. Grow in confidence. Because this is where we enjoy His fullness, the fullness of His grace most completely. And it's not just about you. It's about what happens through you. People will miss out. 
People will be left wondering. People will not get to experience God most fully if we doubt and live in fear. Third, God alone can be trusted implicitly. In a world of uncertainty, He alone is able to remain trustworthy. 400 years. 400 years. The the people of Jerusalem had been given opportunity to question. They had been given opportunity to build in doubt. But God was not finished. He had more to do. And He was going to get it done. He remains trustworthy. He alone is able to elect people for His purposes. He alone is able to elect times and places for these things to occur. He alone sits above all things in sovereign authority. He alone has power to actually completely accomplish all that He says He will do. He alone remains trustworthy to the end. I would fail you. I will fail you. This church... Will fail you. You will fail this church. You will fail others. But God will never fail us. He will never make a mistake. He will never miss a step. He will always remain trustworthy. Fourth, God is not in the business of creating more shame for us, but freeing us from the shame that is already ours. I love what Elizabeth said. He's removed my reproach from me. We all have shame. We already live in shame because we all have shame. Sin. You might cover it up well. You might hide in it well. You might think that you're keeping it from people well. But the truth is this. We all have shame. The reality is you're probably not hiding it as well as you think you are. As good as you think you are. If you can see the shame of others. If you can pick out their faults. If you can see their flaws. If you can see their failings. Don't deceive yourself and think they can't see yours. God is in the business of removing shame. In Christ, He has removed it from us. We can trust it. Finally, just in closing, God has not forgotten us. When the time that He has elected arrives, He will accomplish all that He has promised. It may be 5,000 years from now. It may be tomorrow. But in that time that He has chosen, that He has set aside for it to occur, He will come. You can be certain of that. Because He is a trustworthy God who always remains trustworthy to the very end. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for Your Word, for Your promises, for for Your trustworthiness, Your faithfulness. For a place to stand on the rock. To stand firm. On a place that's never shaken. I just ask God now in these moments. That you would help us to face our doubts. And recognize that 
our, our, our doubts and our worry and our fear and our, our anxiety, our, our nervousness. They all find their root in the same place. We haven't learned to trust you fully. I just ask, God, that you would move us closer. That you would help us to grow in our certainty and our confidence. So all these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.